1: Unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. After that, ye have suffered a while. Make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. So the idea is that we will become perfect, and it's this biblical idea of perfection, which is another way to say maturity. You will not be 100% perfect as we think of it. And let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for all you've done, Lord. Thank you for another week, another opportunity to come into your house. Come into your presence with like-minded people. Thank you for continuing to be with us, your hedge of protection around us. I ask that you would bless this evening, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So usually I joke around in the office about how I've got a toasty 20, Uh, It's not a fiery five-minute sermon, but it's like a toasty 20. Um, And usually it's a joke. I try to go longer than 20, but today might be the day where it's just 20. Uh, We are talking about the discipline of meditation. And I know meditation is one of those interesting, taboo sometimes topics. uh, But the Bible does urge us to meditate on scriptures. When we think of meditation... There are a few different types of meditation. You have the Eastern religious practices where you're supposed to sit and empty your mind uh, and focus on nothing. And then you have the ones where you're supposed to sit cross-legged and go oh. That's probably the one I think of the most when I hear meditation. So usually it makes me roll my eyes, but that's not what we're talking about. Uh, There's also mindfulness, which is thinking about your thoughts and your actions and why you reacted to things the way you did. Uh, and there is even movement meditation where people will garden or people will go on hikes and that movement will help their mind to wander uh, and they'll think about things and it'll help their body relax. When I worked at the YMCA for a few summers, uh, we did a lot of mindfulness type meditation uh, to help the kids calm their bodies down especially after we were running all day long, uh, swimming, playing around. Uh, And there was this one we would do where we would lay on the floor and then we would just think about different muscles and then we'd flex those muscles and then we'd let them go. And that was always my favorite because the kids would get really sleepy afterwards. Um, And then there's we do it at school sometimes if a kid's mad and they're upset about something, Uh, You can do this thing where they, like, I'm going to do it with my hands. You, like, do this, and you try to, like, touch the tip of your fingers. Uh, And you do it a certain amount of times. And usually, like, for some reason, touching the tips of your fingers for kids is hard. Um, Mine just didn't line up right there. But that helps them to think about something else. It helps their mind calm down. And that is the meditation that we are going to talk about. Um, It's very popular today. There's a lot of studies, there's a lot of tests, and these studies and tests show that meditation is beneficial for your long-term health uh, because it can help you reduce stress, which adds years to your life. Um, Just adding deep breathing exercises to your day has been shown to be beneficial to reducing stress and helping our bodies work better. So for our purpose today, when I say meditation, I'm saying it as in, The long and regular practice consideration of a topic, which is a fancy way to say you think about something for a long time. The careful knowledge of Scripture and the commitment to faithful application of the Scripture is the meditation we'll be focusing on. So careful knowledge of Scripture comes from having a conversation with the Scripture and delighting in God's Word. And then the Word of God ...will become our word. So, conversation with scripture. In the book of Psalms, chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, uh, it starts off and it says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day, and night. As you're aware, we live in a world with social media, and in this world, there are about 3.6 billion people on social media, according to a Google search I did, which means that at any given time, you can get a hold of 3.6 billion opinions about anything you can think of. I hear that back in the day, you used to have credentials before you could give opinions. You had to be validated, you had to own something, like a newspaper or a radio show, maybe a magazine. And then you could spread your opinion. Uh, People that were the town gossips, they were limited. You could only gossip to the people you knew in your town. That's why they called it the town gossip. And it would be easy to fall into the snare of sharing your opinion on everything, always being upset at everything. And that is what the scornful are. But the psalmist wants us to know right from the jump, first and foremost, the beginning of the whole book, that we will be blessed for not walking with those people and for not being those people. Instead, the blessed man delights in the law and meditates on it day and night. Those scornful, ungodly voices are swapped out for the voices of the scriptures. Instead of asking the town town gossip for advice, you ask the prophets and the apostles of the Bible what their advice is. When I was growing up, we had the WWJD bracelet error. I don't know if anybody remembers those, but they were little bracelets. They were like cloth sewn together. They had the letters WWJD. What would Jesus do? And it probably didn't live up to its full potential because it was mostly kids doing it. Uh, But the message and the thought behind the bracelets are still applicable for today. Every time you were doing stuff, you had your bracelet, you're supposed to look down and ask yourself, what would Jesus do in this situation? And I think that's what the scripture means when it says to meditate day and night, thinking about him and his desires when we make choices. The problem with the WWJD movement, other than it was mostly run by kids, is that most of us at the time couldn't tell you what Jesus would do, what he wanted us to do. Uh, So that's where we have to take the time to familiarize ourselves with the scripture. We're not just talking about reading it to check off our daily checklist, but actually studying it and trying to apply it to our lives. That is when we begin to have these conversations with the scriptures. Knowing the word of God will help you make better life decisions. So the second part is delighting in God's word. The Psalmist also said that the blessed man his delight is in the law of the Lord. So real quick, has anyone ever met someone you would consider a nerd? You can raise your hand if you want to. You don't have to. So a nerd, um, they just really like stuff, like very specific about one thing. Uh, They like it. They love it. They enjoy it. They just really get nerdy every time they talk about it. Uh, They brighten up. They smile. They know everything about that particular topic. And they want you to know about it as well. So that's what I think it means when it says you delight in the Lord. You delight to think upon the word. You enjoy studying the word of God. You enjoy talking about the word of God. You even like singing about it. They're in love with the word. The blessed man that delights on the word is in love with the word. The book has this quote and it says that scripture is the gravity of the blessed man's life. So everything that goes on, it always comes back. Every thought he has drifts back to the scripture, to the word. Your gravity becomes the word. What was the last thing we truly delighted in? The last thing that made us happy? The thing that you just couldn't wait to tell other people about? Uh, Even better, when was the last time we got excited about something we read in the Bible? In the world we live in today, it's far too easy to reach for that negative before we reach for the positive, to find things to be critical of instead of taking time to delight in the things that we should delight in. Even if we aren't reaching for the negative, we live in a society that has a 24-7 sensational news cycle. We have a smartphone in every pocket, and we are on information overload every second of the day. There's enough things that can keep you distracted and busy every day for the rest of your life. Our public lives and the people we come in contact with are usually not in our control. But that's why it's important that we control our personal lives and the time we spend with God studying and praying. What we delight in is always our choice. When we begin to have conversation with scriptures we begin to familiar, familiarize ourselves with the Word, and we can, we're considering it when we're making our decisions and our choices, then slowly but surely we begin to build up to the point where we begin to enjoy the Word of God. Then the next thing that happens is the Word of God slowly becomes our words. In the world of poetry, it is said that in order to be a great poet, you need to surround yourself with great poetry. You need to read, live, eat, sleep, and breathe good poetry day after day. Great poets don't choose words just because they mean the things they want them to. They have to consider the sound of the word, the syllables in the word, uh, the words, synonyms, antonyms, the vowels, the consonants. All those things have to go into consideration. They have to immerse themselves in the poetry of old and study the past great poets until their language blends in with their own. In the Old Testament, Joshua was given a similar assignment by God. In Joshua 1 verse 8, God is talking to him and he tells him that this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night and thou mayest that thou mayest observe to do according to all That is written therein, for then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. When Moses passed and Joshua took over as leader of the Israelites, um, he could have used his time to do any number of things to prepare. This is a very new nation. This is a very new group of people. Uh, They did, no one was in charge. It was Moses, then Joshua. So there's plenty of room for him to do whatever. He could have studied financial strategies and made Israel the economic power of the Middle East. He could have studied military strategy and wiped out everybody before they even blinked um, on either side of the Jordan River. But instead, God told him that his job was to study the law so that he could observe it and perform it. The law... Did not contain instructions on how to build and train a military. It didn't tell him the list of weaknesses his enemies had. It didn't tell him how to raise crops or how to build a successful city. It basically just told him how to relate to other people around him. How to manage the things he owned and how he should worship God. Yet Joshua failed or succeeded only to the degree degree that he failed or succeeded in following God's word. His knowledge of the word was to be so complete that it was supposed to not depart out of his mouth. The book says the language of the law was to become the language of Joshua. His response to questions were to be informed by the law. The things he praised were to be things that the law praised. The things that made him angry were supposed to be things that The law said should make him angry. Joshua studied, lived, slept, ate, and breathed those words until they became his own. And when you spend some time reading the book of Joshua, you see how he applied the knowledge of the word. Joshua was able to pick up right where Moses left off. And he was able to lead the Israelites through battles and trials until they were able to finally take possession of the land that God had promised them. At the end of Joshua's life, after decades of war and all the good, bad, and ugly things that come with being in charge of people, he could have left the Israelites with any inspirational words that he could, like any of them. There was a long list of things that they should have worked on, and he could have helped them out. But at the end of his life, he left them with advice that sounded very similar to the advice that he was given in Joshua 1. So in Joshua 23, 6, he says, Be therefore very courageous to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, that ye turn not aside therefrom to the right hand or to the left. Joshua's advice to the people was almost word for word what God spoke to him in the beginning of the book of Joshua. Joshua 1, 7 says, Only be thou, and this is God talking to Joshua, Only be thou strong and very courageous that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. At the end of his life, the words of God had become the words of Joshua. He had been charged to study and know the word and because of that, He was able to have conversations with it. He was able to consult it when making decisions. He became so familiar with it, he began to delight in the word to the point that the words became his own. And he was able to speak as God spoke. Meditation, as we're talking about it, requires a knowledge of scripture so deep that your own language begins to conform to the language of the scripture your responses will begin to naturally line up with what the Word says, and you'll be able to handle situations in ways that are biblical. Meditating on God's Word takes us from just having the mental knowledge to transforming our mind and helping us create opportunities to act. Memorization and knowledge of Scripture alone are not enough. We have to be committed to the application of the Word. Paul is a great example of someone who meditated on scripture and applied the knowledge he gained in a way that helped jumpstart the early church. Paul has a very big inner struggle in the Bible, as I'm sure we know. He's introduced to us uh, as a man who doesn't believe that Jesus is God. And in fact, at the beginning of his part of the Bible, he is persecuting Christians in the book of Acts. Acts 7, 57, 58 says, Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. This is Stephen. And witnesses laid down their cloths clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. So while they're running around killing Christians, Saul is collecting their coats, making sure they don't get wrinkled or dirty. He's holding them on, holding on to them for them. In Acts 8, 1 uh, and verse 3, similar things is going on. And at that time, or verse 1 says, and at that time there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered abroad. And then verse 3 says, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church. Entering into every house and hailing them, and hailing men and women, committing them to prison. So then, of course, he starts off not so good, but then he has this awesome experience on the road to Damascus. Uh, God stops him in his tracks, tells him that he's Jesus, um, and it's after that that Paul begins to become a Christian. And then he has this new struggle that he doesn't know what to do with. Um, He knows what the scripture says, or he thinks he knows what the scripture says. And then God puts this call in his life. Uh, Acts 9.15 says, But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. So Paul's struggle is that he's supposed to reach the Gentiles. These are the non-Jewish believers in Israel. Um, the one true God, uh, this would be you and me, uh, something, and this is something that him and the other Jewish people thought was impossible. They didn't think this was how things would happen. Uh, The original thought was that salvation was only meant for the Jews and that everyone else was just stuck looking in. So Paul's dilemma was that God told him that he was supposed to go to these Gentiles And it didn't line up with the things that he had studied from birth. So Paul meditates on scripture. He did the only thing he knew best, which was to study the scripture and search for an answer. The interesting thing to me, uh, which I always find cool, is that these guys in the New Testament, they didn't have the New Testament to work with. They only had the Old Testament. Uh, They did not have everything that we have. Uh, Paul doesn't have the benefit of Acts 10. He doesn't know that Peter's out dealing with Cornelius. Acts 10, 34, 35 says, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation that he he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. He didn't have that. He didn't know about that. Um, many Jews at the time believed that the Old Testament was silent on the Gentile conversion issue because it wasn't supposed to happen. It's not possible. Even some of the apostles are recorded having issues with this idea. And Paul is at the forefront of the push to include the Gentiles in the salvation plan. Ephesians 212 14 says that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. He doubles down in the next chapter of Ephesians 3 And I'm going to read one through six. Uh, He says, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, strong language. If ye have heard of the dispensation of grace of God, which is given me to you, word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when ye read, Ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and the prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. People believed that Paul was telling the truth. People believed that if Paul was telling the truth, then he would be able to provide evidence for what he was saying. They were worried that this new thing, if it was true, then that must mean there's some sort of contradiction in the Bible. Paul was convinced of two things, though. First, that God was faithful to his word. And second, that God had planned all along to bring the Gentiles into covenant. Paul set out to find this evidence. He began to read and study and meditate on the word, looking for something that would prove that God's intention was always to have a church made up of both Jews and Gentiles. The first place he started looking was in Genesis, the beginning. It's probably a good place to start. He looks at the story of Abraham. Abraham is the father of the Jewish people, And it was in his story that Paul begins to see evidence that salvation was for the Jews and the Gentiles. In Genesis 15, God is talking to Abraham, and he's telling him the promise that he'll have a son, and that his son will be a mighty nation. And then they have this moment in verse 6. It says, "Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abraham was considered righteous by God well before he ever becomes circumcised. Paul meditated on that and began to start thinking that God called him righteous before this circumcision, before he became part of the Jewish, uh, that the whole Jewish history started, um, so that he could be the father of both the circumcised Jews and the uncircumcised Gentiles. Paul explains it this way in Romans uh, 4, 11, and 12. It says, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. Then verse 12 says, "...and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith." ...that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Paul had found some proof. He studied, he meditated on scripture, and it was there. And once he began to see that, these other pieces start to fall into place. Um, He began to see evidence everywhere. Uh, In Romans 15, he starts sharing that evidence. Uh, Romans 15 and 9, he quotes 2 Samuel. And the Gentiles are glorifying God for his mercy... Uh, In Romans 15.10, he quotes a passage from Deuteronomy where the Gentiles rejoice together with the Jews. Verse 11, he quotes a psalm where the Gentiles are told to praise the Lord. And then in verse 12, he quotes from Isaiah about how the root of Jesse will reign over the Gentiles. Paul's commitment to the scripture drove him to further meditation in order to find the answers he needed. And I'm going to close if you guys want to stand. Um, uh, Joshua and Paul's commitment to the scripture and meditating on the word paved the way for the people of their time and future generations. Joshua's knowledge of the law made him a good leader and it helped him to lead the Israelites into the promised land. He was so familiar with what his word, he was so familiar with the scripture that his words began to mirror the words of God. Paul's knowledge of the scripture and his commitment to studying and meditating helped the Jews realize that the Gentiles were part of this new covenant with them. If he had continued to read the scripture from a Jewish only point of view, the body of Christ could have been fractured. It's not enough to simply read the scriptures. We are called to meditate on We should be using Scripture to help us make decisions. Meditating on the Word should cleanse our minds. It should transform us and change our speech and habits. We should begin to feel ourselves delighting in the Word, loving and enjoying our time with the Bible. That's when we will begin to see changes in our thoughts and behaviors. Psalms 1, 1, and 2, I'm gonna read it again, it says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. So as we go throughout our days, we need to ask ourselves every so often, What is the gravity of my mind? What is it that I continue to think about? What does my mind often drift to? Is it God and his word, or is it something else that's meant to distract me? What do we need to do to get our minds focused on God to make sure that we're meditating on him day and night? These altars are open. We're going to sing a song. If you want to come pray, we can pray at your
0: cross it.